Lake Michigan's really big. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 9th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How, How are, are you? you? <laughs> oh, I am I'm really excited after last night's epic home run derby. Oh, yes, it was epic. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, though, it's one of the rare home run derbies you could ever say that about. Yeah, I mean, if you care about home run derbies, it was pretty great. The 10-year-old inside of me <laughs> desperately cares about home run derbies. <laughs> that sounds right. Um, and on the line from Los Angeles is 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Good morning, Sarah. Throwing some shade on the home run derby just right off the bat. I have thoughts. <laughs> you have thoughts on the home run derby? Okay. Let's explore them. Jeff, did you watch the home run derby? No. I mean, I watched the highlights. Oh. <laughs> the whole thing is a highlight. Well, there are lots, lots and lots of sports to talk about today. Most importantly, of course, is that the U.S. Women's National Team won the World Cup. You guys, they won the World Cup. So exciting. So good. It was so much fun. Um, I'm still super hype about uh, about their win. They were so fun to watch, the whole World Cup, and I couldn't be happier. Frankly, if you look at that entire tournament... It was pretty stress-free from a fan's perspective. I know the end of the France game was a little... They were never losing. It never went to extra time. It never went to penalties. They won every game. It was comfortable. All things considered, as far as, like, tournaments go, it was very comfortable. It did not ever at any point almost feel like it was in jeopardy. I mean, maybe there was, like, a few moments... um, who was it that tied, England briefly tied them, or uh, mm-hmm. in the um, in the second half or something? And, and that was really like the moment where it's like, oh, this could go south in a hurry. But then they recovered, and for the most part, it just was like just dominance. I feel wire like you guys wire. have very short memories. Like the Spain match was nerve wracking. They tied them in that too early because U.S. had an early goal, and then Spain tied them immediately. And well, the was... early goals though were, I think like so crucial to that feeling of just like they're always playing from ahead they they really were like the ultimate kind of front runners in this tournament in terms of just get that early goal and and always have that in your back pocket at least if they if the other team scores fine we're tied then you know it really was they I never think, that contributed to the feeling they literally never I think, trailed. I think what we're learning this morning is that I am a much more nervous fan than you guys are I was nervous literally every moment because yeah. there's so much pressure, and I mean, they—that's what happens when you're the front runner. You have to win convincingly, or you have people like 538 deputy editor Chad Matlin, who's like, "This team sucks. They're terrible. They're <laughs> wow. no good." And wow. like, <laughs> yeah. So I was very nervous the whole, the entire tournament. So well, we I feel lot, much better now. We had a lot of people in the in the newsroom when we were like live blogging these games that were like down on the team, or uh, uh, one of our um, managing uh, people who I will not name. <laughs> Uh, was very down on Rose Lavelle just continuously throughout the whole tournament, and all she did was you know make great plays. I think and she score the final vindicated goal. herself, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, with with that goal in the final, the only non penalty goal of that game. So <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. good for Rose Lavelle. Yeah, Megan Rapinoe, of course, is uh, is a hero now to all fans. My my player of the tournament really was Crystal Dunn, and I. I'm consistent on that. The whole tournament, I I loved her. She was amazing. She was everywhere on the pitch. She was 
she, her defense, I think, made a huge difference for the U.S. So that was fun. Who was who were your players of the? I, mine of was the Rose. I thought she was great. I mean, honestly, I, I think when she went down in the England game, you could definitely feel that game change. Like it, all of a sudden, it didn't seem like the U.S. was controlling the ball as much. And I think it was not long after that England might have scored the offsides equalizer oh, right. that wasn't. But she was making plays. All knockout round. I think of that back of that ridiculously amazing pass she had against Spain to Rapino that wasn't a goal, and then obviously you know the play in the in the last game in the final against the Netherlands was incredible. Even after I was like, she doesn't look herself. She's she might still be injured, and then she like scores immediately. <laughs> Go back and read the live blog for more bad things. Of our yeah. bad takes, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, along those lines, I think we have to give a shout-out to Alex Morgan and Alyssa Nair also, who were two of the players that were sort of most maligned, I yeah. feel like, on this team. Uh, and they had their moments, uh, you know, as the tournament progressed, especially um, Alex Morgan seemed hopelessly banged up and just, you know, like she wasn't going to be a factor about midway through the knockouts. And she turned it around, progressing further into the tournament. So, you How know, many penalty kicks did Alex Morgan Morgan draw. I mean, you know, yeah, she did. Megan right. Rapinoe was in a position to hit all those shots because people kept fouling Alex Morgan in the box. So, and and she did a good job selling those fouls. Hey, which hey, is, that's which part is of important. The game. That's part of soccer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I one thing I don't understand is. Uh, this is what separates one of the things that separates soccer from basketball is in basketball, the fouled player takes the shot. But in soccer, it seems a little weird that the person who drew the penalty doesn't have to take the penalty. Yeah. You just get to pick whoever your most, you know, I don't know, ice cold, ruthless uh, scorer is who happens to be the best in the world and Megan Rapinoe. And of course, she put them away. But uh, it would be an interesting twist if the person who actually drew the foul ended up taking the shot it's like a technical fell it is like a technical right yeah i kind of like it though because then they can't pick on oh there's no hack uh, right whoever. yeah exactly you yeah. can't just pick on a player who is you know nervy when taking those but you know you have to let's explore that actually that sounds kind of interesting to me <laughs> if that was a strategy this person's terrible at penalties just foul the Tripper. crap out of them yeah yeah exactly <laughs> just adds another element of strategy to the game just <laughs> yeah absolutely well, also in the sports world this week, remember, um, remember when Kawhi Leonard signed to, with the that Clippers? That was a long time ago. That was ago. like months ago, I'm pretty sure, or like four days ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of uh, exciting NBA free agency news. Apparently, the NBA free agency season is now a week long, and everyone signs, and then um, it's just a flurry, a flurry of news. Well, one designated player gets to be the, like the the one holdout that kind of you know, signifies the end of the period. And this this time it was Kawhi Leonard. The NBA is just basically trolling Major League Baseball at this point, where they have these free agency periods that last like four months. And we write seven articles about why free agents aren't signing with teams. And the NBA is like, everyone's going to sign in a week and it's going to be crazy. <laughs> I actually am not sure which I like better. Like, this is exciting. It's also exhausting. At least we have things to talk about for four months with the uh, with MLB. Yeah, we can complain about yeah. who's not signed. Right. We can run computer simulations. Yeah. Uh, also in the sport world is Wimbledon is going on right now. Breaking news: Serena Williams just beat fellow American Allison Risk in the quarterfinals, so that's very exciting. Coco Goff, the 15 year old who made us all feel bad about our accomplishments by the time we were 15. 
She ended her inspiring run against Simona Halep in the round of 16. Very excited to see what's next for her. And an underhand serve made an appearance. Uh, yes. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> it was a feisty match between Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios that went to a tie break in the fifth set. They're all feisty ma- uh, matchups, I feel like, with, with those two. Because Kyrgios just loves annoying Nadal. And the, the like peak moment of that is the sneaky, you know, out of nowhere underhand serve, which he uh, he does that to like everyone, but I think Nadal especially doesn't appreciate it. It is funny when other players try to out annoy Nadal since he tends to annoy players with his like sort of the pace and right. like <laughs> I'm gonna take my time. Oh, I, I mean, if I was playing Nadal, which is a funny thought just in and of itself that towel thing would just drive me insane and just his whole routine and his hiking up his shorts i mean it must be so frustrating to play that guy and then you're gonna lose anyway so that's the other part of it you know he's gonna take his time beating you decisively all right well on today's show we will talk about the mlb all-star game which is tonight and uh, what to expect of the matchup. We'll also be joined by 538's Travis Sachek to discuss his new book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. It's All-Star Week for MLB. The Home Run Derby was Monday night, and we watched Vlad Guerrero Jr. break the records for most total homers hit with 91, and most homers in the first round with 29. He did lose in the final round to the Mets' Pete Alonso, which seems to happen all the time. Players go crazy in one of the first rounds and then lose, sadly. you, you got to pace yourself. Yeah, that's true. You, you could see at the end of each of the rounds, the guys were like just like sort of reaching for the ball, and right. like so tired, and I felt kind of bad for them, exerting too much energy. This has obviously been an eventful season for home runs in MLB. There are 14 teams on track to beat their franchise records, and three players with 30 home runs already, including Alonzo. Even if Christian Yelich doesn't top Barry Bond's 60 homer season, we're likely to see plenty of players make it to 40 or 50. The cash prize for this year's home run derby was also bumped up to $1 million, which is 180% of Alonzo's rookie salary of 555000 Do you guys like the home run derby better than the game itself? Is it becoming like the dunk contest in the NBA All-Star game? I like the home run derby the way it is currently formatted, at least probably more than the game just because uh, last night it's hard to kind of walk away from it and not just be excited about seeing all those baseballs leave the park <laughs> but uh, I think it's uh, it is like the dunk contest in the sense that you know it's gone through a lot of format changes over the years the format I really can't get over. I hate that it changes every year just have one round everyone get up hit as many home runs as you can everyone sit down that guy wins he hit the most home runs they overcomplicated. They the dunk contest. Everyone, you guys, all dunk three times. Okay, you're the best. <laughs> Next thing, let's move you're on. You're just all about efficiency. Let's have another contest. Let's have a fielding contest. Let's have a base running a, contest. A fielding contest. A fielding. Uh, the, the fielding derby. <laughs> ESPN is like, don't call us. I don't know. I think it goes through ebbs and flows. Uh, and I think I probably like the baseball all star game in general more than either of you or at least more than the average person i'm all in on the all-star game i think it's the only all-star game that really works kind of like it's the only hall of fame that works baseball's got a couple things just down i like the hockey hall of fame and i also like uh don't mind the hockey (laughs) all-star game this is 
This has gotten away from us already. <laughs> but don't you want to talk about convoluted. Look at how the rules have changed in the, ho- the hockey all-star game where they're playing like three-on-three round-robin tournaments. Like, what is happening? Okay. So tonight we'll get a chance to watch the actual matchup between the National and American Leagues. The MLB All-Star Game has undergone several evolutions in its time, and it no longer determines home field advantage in the World Series. Oh. <laughs> I completely missed that that practice had ended in 2016. Last night I was like, wait, does this still count? It no. counts. It doesn't count. No, it doesn't count. It no longer counts. It no longer counts. It never should have counted. I think counted. that's the tagline, yeah. Former player and analyst Mark DeRosa had this to say on MLB Central about how the rosters are currently decided. If we're playing for home field advantage, I get it. Uh, a manager has a right to, to the National League and the players to play it out and to, to set his roster accordingly and, and have bullpen options and utility players and weapons to win a baseball game. That's not what this is. Mm-hmm. This is the Midsummer Classic now. This is to honor the best players in each league. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like roster size should matter. I don't feel like there should be snubs. So how do we feel about the call to eliminate roster limits? Um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I mean, it feels a little like uh, participation trophies or something like that. I don't know. The idea of snubs, I think they're getting better at picking the All-Stars anyway, uh, and uh, at least from like a sabermetric point of view uh and also you know you have to balance in the fact that some teams every every team needs to have at least one all-star and so you always have the fun element of like hey this guy's having i guess an okay season but he's also on i don't know the marlins or something and so uh, i don't know i i I don't mind I, i think we're fishing around for things to uh to gripe about at this point is it a good idea to continue having every team represented I mean, that it feels like that debate comes up often. You know, I actually kind of like that rule as a, you know, as a child, especially when the Mets were pretty bad. They have to be more specific. At least gave you something <laughs> like maybe your guy, you know, maybe, hey. Bernard Gilkey. <laughs> maybe Lance Johnson's going to come in and I can enjoy that one at bat. But also, if you look, there's guys every year who don't make it into the game or will get maybe, you know, an inning in the field or one at bat and, and definitely pitchers who are unused. So I don't really understand how expand, expanding the rosters would just make more awkward decisions for these managers trying to, you know, get everyone on the field. Yeah, I wonder if one of the theories there is that, you know, if you expand it enough, then the manager won't even give any thought to making sure everyone gets in the game. And so then you have enough players if you need them and you don't run into one of those like nightmare Bud Selig and Milwaukee all-star situations, tie games, whatever that was uh, in 2002. Uh, and so it just sort of like, yeah, some players are going to not get in the game. And that's just sort of baked into it at that point. The problem with the all-star game, Sarah, you identified on Slack yesterday was is interleague. I mean, I think if you if your entire life, as which many young baseball fans this is applies to, if, if you've never seen baseball without interleague, you forget how cool it was to see these stars from the other league, pitchers from the American facing hitters from the National, and it was something that you really only saw in the World Series, and in fact, never saw, because, you know, most teams don't go to the World Series. Yeah, I mean, I hate the All-Star break, because I hate not having real baseball. I don't care about the All-Star game, because it doesn't mean anything, but I also didn't like it when it meant something, when it determined home field advantage, because that seemed dumb, because the whole thing is dumb. I just, I think interleague play... Like everything in baseball, interleague play 
ruin the All-Star game. Yeah, but don't you think it would have been ruined anyway? I mean, part of it is like the whole purpose of the All-Star game was originally to be able to see players that you didn't get to see unless they physically came to your Mm. city. Maybe you got to hear games from them on the radio or like once a week there was like a game of the week on one of the like four channels that were on TV back in uh, the 60s. I assume that's how it was. (laughs) Uh, And so... I just think the media environment has changed so much and we have MLB.TV and we can watch every player in every game in every market if we want. It's actually harder to see games in your own market if you, if you don't have a, a cable subscription than it is to see games from teams outside your market. And so I think that has really skewed the the purpose of the All-Star game and I think that would have happened regardless of interleague play. So what about the snubs? Were there any in particular that you were, you know, looking at in either of these leagues? Was anyone unfairly snubbed? I, I'm impressed the last couple of years how the voters, you know, considering that incident a few years ago where the royal fans all tried to <laughs> tried to select their entire Stuff team. the ballot box. For instance, Bryce Harper didn't make the All-Star, didn't get voted in. Um, I think you go back to another era 10, 20 years ago, you know, when people were just like, ah, Cal Ripken, he's the only one I know. <laughs> and just kind of picking certain guys on their pure name value. I mean, that went on for a long time. And, and now you look at, you know, Yelich and Bellinger and all the really deserving players were getting selected. I agree. I mean, in the AL, the one guy snubbed that I thought was was Max Kepler for the Twins. And I am a Twins fan, obviously, and I cannot get that upset about that. It's like, okay, I mean, sure, he would have been fine had he been chosen as a reserve but also I don't think it's some big travesty that he's not there they did a pretty good job I think yeah and and just to go back to your point uh Jeff about like there being fewer snubs yeah I feel like back in the day if you were trying to figure out you know who was having a good season you'd have to wait for like baseball weekly to come out and and pour over the stats I, I mean that's what I did and sometimes in the newspaper once a week they would print the the full leaders for uh you know all the various stat categories now we have baseball reference and we have you know this thing called the internet and so I think it has really made it uh, more difficult to snub guys along with the fact that sabermetrics is becoming more and more accepted uh, as the way to judge player contributions. So we're sort of more information. We agree on which information is most important, far more than we used to. And I think that that makes it a little difficult if you're trying to, if if as a crusty old sports writer such as myself, one of your uh, annual tropes would be to, in the past, would be to dust off the old, let's write about the all-star snubs. And then now it's like, you know, oh, there aren't as many. <laughs> I actually think the fans should pick the starting pitcher. We've earned it as fans. We've proven ourselves capable. Why can't we pick pitchers? I don't understand that. Why is that still off limits? Particularly now that it doesn't count. Who cares? Who cares if the fans screw it up? Okay, who do we like in the game? Who's going to win, AL or NL? Well, it seems like the AL wins almost every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you guys about, like, do you have any theories about why that is? Like, what is it? Normally, you would be like, Oh, you know, the because the AL actually dominates interleague play on a perennial basis also. How did the AL get better players? Is it something about the DH? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if so, what is it about the DH that would cause But like that there's nothing inherent about uh a certain set of teams having, you know, to spend one more roster spot on a 
designated hitter uh, that would cause the balance of the game to be thrown out of whack. You wouldn't think. I mean, especially now, the DHs uh, have gotten worse and worse and worse. You know, you used to have like David Ortiz and Edgar Martinez, and now uh, teams are trotting out uh, kind of crappy guys at DH. That- Even a crappy hitter is better than a pitcher hitting. Always. You would think 100% so. 100% of the time. Uh, but, uh, in fact, the Gap, uh, our, our guest on this show later uh, on this episode, <laughs> Travis Sawchick, wrote about this uh, in the offseason that the gap in average on-base plus slugging between the two leagues is even uh, kind of narrowing, which you would not expect at all when one league gets to have an actual hitter uh, in their lineup and the other one has to hit a pitcher every ninth batter. So I just think it's very fascinating that one league would accumulate more talent than the other. Uh, and I just I can't necessarily explain why it has happened. Even I, I do think for a, for a while there. I mean, I, I am with you that I don't. I've never really understood the AL dominance of this game. Um, it's a little perplexing, but I do think they did have a monopoly on the star power for a while. Uh, maybe not a monopoly, but it, 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 you know, you look at like A Rod and Trout and each row. And Miguel Cabrera when he was on the Tigers, and it it just did seem like that he's he's still on the Tigers <laughs> when he was oh, good I'm on sorry. the Tigers <laughs> when he was on the Tigers and he was you know winning winning the triple, the triple crown. crown. <laughs> All right, he so does that mean that you guys are picking the AL tonight? No, I, I no. Oh, you're gonna I pick the NL. Do think I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a prediction, but I do think the pendulum, the star power pendulum, is shifting a little bit to the NL. You look at the guys on the on the NL team, whether it's Freddie Freeman or Acuna or Yelich, Bellinger. Bellinger. They they do seem like they're the best players in baseball currently. Maybe that is just a brief blip, and once Vlad Guerrero starts hitting homers in actual baseball games, not <laughs> novelty contests, that could change. But at, at this moment, it probably will come down to you know the reserves and. The guys pitching the sixth inning because it seems to always do, and yet we we focus on the starting lineup. But that's the whole point about baseball that your top five stars are better in one league than the other, but it doesn't really matter because you have to have a full baseball game. So, and that's what's so confusing about the fact that the American League has won so often. They've won all but three All Star games since 1997. Granted, one of those was also a tie, <laughs> right. uh, but that's <laughs> but they didn't crazy lose. <laughs> because if you thought that it was reasonably evenly matched between the two and it was basically a coin flip the odds of a coin coming up heads you know that number of times and that number of flips is so low that it causes you to question it can't be a coin flip it has to be some kind of inherent advantage to the american league and so then yeah it's just sort of unpacking that well i'm taking the al tonight even if you guys won't make real bold prediction <laughs> i'm taking the nl I, I just decided. I'm taking a tie. No, I'm kidding. I'm taking the AL. <laughs> okay, let's leave that there. Today's episode is brought to you by Keeps. Losing hair sucks. Now, I don't know much about that right now, and I'm hoping to keep it that way. Neil may or may not have hair. We're not sure. Yeah, I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> it's kind of like when Tiger won the Masters this year and he took off his hat and we're like whoa tiger you have no hair but congrats on the masters you haven't seen him without a hat in 25 years (laughs) well maybe maybe tiger should check out keeps i see what you did there (laughs) yeah thank you two out of three guys experience hair loss by the time they're 35 introducing keeps the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair you have 
Keeps products are FDA approved and inexpensive at just $10 per month. Signing up takes less than five minutes. Answer a few simple questions and a licensed physician will review your information and recommend the treatment that's right for you. Keeps is shipped to your door every three months and treatments are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss, with some men experiencing up to 20% hair regrowth. So if you suffer from hair loss, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Keeps, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. For a limited time, receive your first month of treatment for free. Go to Keeps.com slash takedown. That's Keeps.com slash takedown. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash takedown. We're joined now by 538 baseball writer Travis Sachek, who is in the thick of the all-star festivities in Cleveland. How's it going, Travis? It's going well. A lot of excitement here. Home run derby. Vlad hitting bomb after bomb and not winning. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's a fun time to be in the city. I thought every time was a fun time to be in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, that's that right. True? Fun times in Cleveland I've today. been told that Cleveland rocks. I was told that about 5,000 times during the celebrity game last night. So your book, co-written with former 538 staff writer Ben Lindbergh, focuses on the next era of baseball analytics, the revolution following the practices and thinking behind Moneyball and Sabermetrics. How does what you're looking at in the MVP machine differ from what we already know about data in baseball? Yeah, so our argument is that obviously when Moneyball is published, it changed the way front offices were built, the way many of us look at what's important from a uh, skill standpoint on the field, on-base percentage is more important than betting average, that sort of thing. But, you know, we're like 15 years out from when Moneyball is published or 16 years out, and every team, every front office has some sort of Moneyball component. There's quantitative analysts in every department and decision science departments, and everyone is kind of looking at baseball players the same way and skill the same way. And you look at free agency, everyone's treating free agency the same way. No one's no one's buying into that. So uh, if you're looking for an advantage, it has to be elsewhere. And we argue it's uh, not identifying what matters, but creating higher levels of skill and getting more out of players, whether you're an individual player trying to improve or a team trying to take some of the uh, new player development uh, practices and technology we document in the book, trying to take that to scale. So player development has been largely ignored in the baseball library and in media, I think. And we felt there's this, we feel player development is the most important thing going on in baseball right now, as far as where advances are being made, where competitive advantages are being created. So uh, we tried to fill that void in the baseball library, and we do we do think it's important. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, you even called player development data the new steroids of baseball that, um, you know, you mentioned Moneyball being almost from, like, the team's perspective, getting players that uh, did certain things and sort of treating the players almost like they were, uh, this is what they do, and they're kind of a finished product. Uh, but your book makes the case that now it's it's almost like the players are striking back by uh, by showing that they can change and adapt and use data to kind of figure out what the best operating procedure is from their perspective, which is very different, I think. Yeah, this is a story about player empowerment, where I think the Moneyball era really concentrated a lot of power and decision-making in front offices and uh, worked against players. Again, free agency, where we've we've seen the average, I think, player salary decline the last two years, and that's really surprising. And if you're a player, that's disturbing. But this movement uh, gives power back to players where you can increase your skill set in ways we didn't think was po- were possible. Uh, you, If you're curious, if you're willing to embrace some of the new ideas and tech and data, 
uh, you can become a better player. And, you know, we document a lot of that are now pretty famous cases, like Justin Turner. Uh, in September 2013, Turner was batting 250 with no home runs. He was worried he'd be non-tendered by the Mets, and he, he would be non-tendered by the Mets after the season. But he'd been listening to Marlon Bird talk about this new swing he'd picked up uh, the previous offseason and, and working with an outside swing instructor named Doug Lotta. And all year on charter flights around the batting practice cage, Bird had been talking about doing all these unorthodox things, swinging up on the ball, taking a uh, greater stride towards the pitcher, trying to contact the ball out in front of the plate, trying to hit home runs in practice. I mean, these are things that were basically never taught uh, in baseball from the amateur game to the pro game. And on September 6, 2013, Turner tried it out in batting practice. He started hitting balls into left field bleachers in Cleveland. That's something he never did. And in his third at bat that night, he hit his first home run of the year, uh, Elevated fastball from Cody Allen. He put over the 405 sign at Progressive Field. And Turner, after that, went and sought out Doug Lotta that offseason. Uh, after he's non-tendered by the Mets, and, you know, the rest is history. He becomes a star with the Dodgers with a new swing. We've seen J.D. Martinez do this uh, with a similar outside instructor. Mookie Betts even worked a little bit with Lotta and the Red Sox. They signed Martinez, of course, and brought in Tim Hires, who is sort of from the Lotta tree, he was with the Dodgers, but th- that wasn't even the high-tech advancements. Then you have players like Adam Adovino, who runs out of Manhattan storefront last year and uh, equips it with the Edutronic high-speed camera and Rapsodo pitch tracking. And those are very powerful tools as they let pitchers see exactly how their grip, their fingertips, and wrist position impart spin on a ball. Uh, and until this high-speed camera advancement that was really not viewable, it was not, uh, you could not observe this. And you pair that with the Rapsodo pitch tracking, which doesn't give you just spin rate it gives you spin access so you have you understand uh is this the kind of spin i want is this transverse spin that creates movement and you have this great feedback system uh for the nascent it's created the nascent field of pitch design and you know trevor bauer deserves a lot of credit for bringing that into the game and this spring we saw edutronic cameras all throughout baseball but you know uh bauer out of vino turner jd martinez rich hill is a guy who went against the convention of going away from his fastball as a primary pitch. There's all these stories of players who are either on the fringe of baseball or not getting the most out of talent to you know, reach new levels of power, uh, new pitches that for a long time scouts didn't think you, if you didn't know how to spin a ball, you couldn't create a breaking ball. But now we're seeing guys create breaking balls from scratch. We're seeing the lowest correlation between size and power we've ever seen in baseball. We're seeing a lot of guys increased skill levels in a way we, we'd never thought really to be possible, at least many of us hadn't thought to be possible. Well, and Travis, I wanted to talk about the common thread that ran through a lot of those examples that you just mentioned, is that they, uh, it was players turning to people outside of the Major League Baseball establishment and sort of these like self-made uh, trainers and coaches that really kind of put them in a position to uh, make these breakthroughs. These weren't coming down from, you know, Major League front offices and coaching staffs, for the most part, they were coming from you, you talk a lot about Kyle Body of Driveline Baseball, uh, who's like this pitching guru that is an out, total outsider. What do you think caused that? That the the developments are coming from not inside of the hierarchy of Major League Baseball. Is that just where radical ideas kind of have to come from? Because the people inside of baseball are too sort of steeped in the orthodoxy of traditional coaching. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and we've sort of seen this in pro football too, or college football, where the spread offenses really began in like random high schools in I think Texas and Arkansas, and they they trickle up into the, into the game. And 
uh, like Kyle Bodie, I, he was he's a true outsider who uh, he was a college dropout. He was uh, working as a server at Olive Garden. He moved out to Seattle to, <laughs> to work for Poker Stars, or he started coaching youth baseball and with his freshman team. And you know, he he was a baseball fan. He read Moneyball. He was kind of a stats nerd, but he was just kind of dumbfounded by uh, the teaching practices that. Seattle area coaches had, and they had no data or good reason to back up things they were doing. So that sparked his interest in player development and thinking, hey, why don't I try to measure everything to see what actually matters in a pitching motion, to see, can we create velocity? Do weighted balls help? All, so he started to question everything. Does weightlifting make sense? Is it a good idea or stupid? And he calls it first principles learning, which uh, I know people have different feelings about Elon Musk, but he, he has this great anecdote about, uh, you know, Musk disrupted the rocket industry by asking, why do rockets cost too, so much? You know, the underlying materials aren't as expensive as, you know, the cost to build a rocket should be. And wh- how do rockets work? So Bodhi went to the first principles of uh, pitching mechanics and said, how do pitching mechanics work? He uh, put together the, uh, a component of his first biomechanical pitching lab he built in an aisle of a Home Depot at a P- PVC pipe. So he uh, he's kind of a homebrew outsider, but he you know he really began uh, by just asking why, what are the best practices, and measuring them. And you know, Driveline Baseball, his company has now become very steeped in technology. It's really grown as a business, and you know, it's had a lot of impact in Major League Baseball. But you know, it starts with an outsider who's willing to question everything, and he he's not a prisoner at all to baseball tradition. Tradition. He doesn't have to worry about working up the coaching ranks, and he's just he's going to question everything. Where I think that's harder to do when you're in the institution of pro baseball or wherever it may be. And same thing on the hitting side. A lot of guys are in these like garage-like structures and industrial parks, and they're teaching things that ran contrary to what we hear in pro baseball. And there's a certain freedom that, that allows for you, I think, when you're outside the game. So we had uh, 538 editor-in-chief Nate Silver on the show a couple weeks ago, and he ranted in our Get Off My Field segment <laughs> about there being too many home runs in baseball, <laughs> which is, you know, sort of the fault of analytics that there are so many home runs we've said you should do that and and now there are maybe too many how does that correlate with this like era of player development is there a risk to ruining the game for people who hate the long ball i mean i still think most people like home runs we have a home run derby and not you know that did you see that south korean bunting contest they had i did (laughs) i love that that seemed amazing i mean maybe more people would Want to replace the derby with the bunting contest? I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> Nate probably does. It takes all kinds, I guess. <laughs> but no, I mean, we cover this in the book, and you know there are some potential downsides, including the aesthetic of the sport and how people enjoy to consume baseball. And you know that march to three true outcomes, strikeouts, walks, home runs, it continues. And we argue that you know player development practice, which is really player, to, player optimization, only uh, incentivizes... And rewards those those skills. Pitchers missing bats and batters really hitting the ball as far as they can. And I suspect the ball is playing a role, as we've seen a lot of the research out there. And even Major League Baseball's study, even though they couldn't find a smoking gun in eighteen, uh, you know they believe the ball's a little more aerodynamic. But still, guys are hitting the ball. Uh, more balls are going in the air, and I think guys are hitting them in a more optimum way. Home runs in the lower third of the strike zone are up like thirty percent this year, uh, and I. Launch angles at an all-time high in the, across baseball and in the lower third. 
guys, I, swing plane is a part of this. Approach is part of this. Uh, I think adapt into velocity is a part of it too. But yeah, I think it is a real concern if you have, you know, I have a four-year-old son and would I have been drawn to baseball if I was in his position? And, you know, there's a lot of dead time, a lot of fewer balls in play, less action, uh, and more time between pitches too, which is a different subject. But yeah, it is a concern. And you look at the average age of a baseball fan, I think it's like 57 years old. It's not good. I think I I think I saw where people (laughs) under thirty, only seven percent of Americans identify as with baseball as their favorite sport. So I think this style of play does raise real questions on whether it's good for fans, but it's good for players. I mean, if you're a batter, home runs are the ultimate outcome. If you're a pitcher, the best thing you could do today is avoid having the ball put in play. Uh, so so there is there is that balance, and I don't I don't know how base. It's a great task, great challenge for Rob Manfred to decide what should we do. Should we move the pitching mound back to sixty two feet? I don't know. And and maybe players being more empowered will allow more of the best athletes to play baseball. They'll be more incentivized to play it in, in a version of the sport that they have more control over. Well, Travis, tell us the name of your book again and where people might be able to go buy it. It is called the MVP Machine, and it is available at a uh, you know. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to buy books, your local independent bookseller. Hopefully they have it too. You can order it through them. Check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for thanks, joining Travis. us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, start us off. So... Uh, this happens to be one that is a descent into the data that will also lead to a story. I, know. I feel like I've been lying site. about the rabbit holes. No, this, sometimes like, whole time. They, most of the time they don't lead. They to They almost stories. never. But this one is stories. a rare one that this does. One, this so one will be. this is about the U.S. women's national team. We talked about their uh, thrilling World Cup victory yes. at the top of the show, and uh, they, as as a reward for what they did, as they come home, they're going to get the traditional New York City heroes welcome of a parade through the Canyon of Heroes in Lower Manhattan. Uh, uh, which is an amazing uh, scene. I mean, we actually want to go down yeah. there if we can find the time on Wednesday uh, and and check it out. I've actually never been to one before, uh, but that's not all that surprising. So, first of all, the last uh, Canyon of Heroes celebration was in 2015 for the U.S. Women's National Team's 2015 World Cup championship. There has not been one in between then. And so that got me thinking about just... How often do these things happen? Uh, do do we have an image in our head of them happening more often than we think? Who do they tend to give them for? All of these things. Uh, so I was going to do a little like manual research, and then I realized that the wonderful Wikipedia, Sarah's favorite website on the internet, has a list of all the ticker tape parades, and there's been about 200 of them in history uh, in New York City, dating back to 1886, the first ticker tape parade, October 28, 1886, a, an impromptu celebration and dedication of the Statue of Liberty. They, they made sure to uh, underscore that impromptu nature of it. Wait, wait, wait. How is that even a parade if it's just like people just rioting in the street people. well <laughs> it is a thin line between a parade and a riot uh as as we will learn from some of these uh but no it, it was off and running from there uh this will be in the database the 196th uh parade the the one for the women's national team and there were a few trends that kind of jumped out to me as interesting about the history of these things so we really do 
almost exclusively give these things to sports celebrations now. That is not overly surprising because you think of the Yankees winning a lot of World Series over the years. Uh, the New York Giants have won the Super Bowl uh, a number of times. Um, but 11 of the last 12 Canyon of Heroes celebrations have been devoted to sports teams, uh, and this covers the period from 1994 until 2019. You got a New York Rangers, you got a number of Yankees, number of Giants, uh, uh, Super Bowl championships, two U.S. women's soccer team. One other uh, interesting sports one is Sammy Sosa. Oh my gosh. After the season in which he hit 66 home runs, so 1998. Had the great duel with McGuire. McGuire did not get a parade in New York City, but Sammy Sosa did get a parade in New York City in the Canyon of Heroes. Partially that was because he helped with hurricane relief efforts in the Dominican Republic uh, that same year. And I guess he was just the the pride of New York, you know, uh, even though he played for the Cubs. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that makes no sense to me. How can you have... Anything honoring Sammy Sosa that does not also honor Mark McGuire in, in October of nineteen ninety eight. Right, yeah, yeah, like what? But that, that uh, we will see. This is one of the least weird uh, of the parades that that got handed out. So the one in that span that wasn't for uh, a sports accomplishment went to John Glenn uh, and the other astronauts in the space shuttle Discovery. He was seventy seven years old and went into space. Turns out that this period of sort of sports. Uh, dominating the the New York City ticker tape parade is a pretty new phenomenon. Uh, the the peak era of ticker tape parades happened in the 1950s and the 1960s. So you did have your parades for the the not just the New York Yankees, but also the New York Giants when they were a baseball team here in New York. Now, for a year, they didn't even win the World Series. They only won the pennant, famously won the pennant on Bobby Thompson's home run. Uh, but the bulk of the celebrations in that era went to visiting dignitaries and heads of state. Uh, it, it would have been harder to find a, a president of another country that didn't get their own ticker tape parade in downtown New York uh, in in that era. Also, military uh, leaders and, and heroes from the still recently completed uh, World War II. That's the kind of thing that dominated the uh, the 50s and the 60s. And we can't forget about the astronaut uh, homecoming parade because that was a big deal. Uh, many of the uh, Apollo missions, uh, certainly the ones that landed on the moon, they got their own parade afterward. But even the Mercury missions, John Glenn, not just in in 1998 uh, got his own parade, but he got one for being the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962. Uh, so that was a period of time in which we just went crazy. Basically, half of all of the ticker tape parades in the history of New York City happened during the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, and it's not kind of a coincidence that by the early to mid-70s, when the city was kind of going almost going bankrupt uh, and, and, and the country was sort of, you know, experiencing uh, a certain feeling of malaise and decline that uh, these ticker tape parades kind of tailed off. So uh, it, it is much more of a rare occurrence now. The other golden era that I wanted to point out happened in the 1920s and the 1930s. And that was also right after World War One, at least in the in the early 20s. Uh, and there were a lot of military celebrations. But the thing that dominated that era was actually these explorers, these adventurers, these expeditions like uh, uh, 
Robert Byrd, uh, who, who is a military pilot, but also famous uh, for, for being the first person to fly over the North Pole uh, and flying over Antarctica and these things. They got uh, the, uh, parades for each of those accomplishments. He's the only person to have three parades in his <laughs> honor in history. Uh, Megan Rapinoe will get her second yeah. <laughs> this, this time. Uh, but, but you also had Amelia Earhart had two parades in her honor before she disappeared uh, only she'd come home she could have had a third she could have really had a third they were giving out parades to some of the most ridiculous uh, things that I could find were this guy Douglas Wrongway Corrigan he was a pilot in uh, New York who uh, thought he was flying to California and he accidentally flew to Ireland instead you'd think he would notice so many questions water under him there are conspiracy theories that say that Wrongway Corrigan did it on purpose which I probably tend to believe. What body of water did he think he was flying over? No, it's unclear. <laughs> but he got a parade for accidentally flying to the wrong, in the wrong direction. Uh, there's a, there was a Swiss Argentine professor who rode a horse solo from Buenos Aires to New York. Well, that's impressive, though. Better than the guy who didn't understand why he was going over an ocean. <laughs> So uh, there were 48 European journalists who went on an American discovery flight around the U.S. in 1949. They got their own parade. The only musician in the history of uh, ticker tape parades to receive one, Van Cliburn, who won the International Tchaikovsky Competition in Moscow in 1958. I think that was really just more of like a screw you to Russia. We had an American guy win something in (laughs) Moscow. They were like, give him a parade. Uh, We also had... Uh, a parade for the first woman to swim the English Channel, which is a huge accomplishment. Uh, but then another woman swam the English Channel not long afterward, and she got her own parade two weeks later. Uh, and so they had to, uh, her distinction was that she was the first mother to swim the English Channel. Sure. Uh, the Knights of Pythias, a secret society, a literal secret society, got their own parade in 1955. But we'll never know how they got it because they operated <laughs> through secret nice. means. Yeah. <laughs> did, they, did they just have a lot of ticker tape and they couldn't get rid of it? I think that that, that could have. I mean, yeah. really, after the stock market crash in the late 20s, They're you like, just had a lot of ticker yeah. tape and, and not that many investors. Maybe you did have to get rid of it. You know, with all the aviators, I have one note with all the aviators on here they should have given one to uh sully for landing the plane on the hudson come on that would have been perfect oh that was proposed yeah no yeah there were people calling for that and it's a little surprising given how just willy-nilly they gave things these things out like candy (laughs) in an earlier era that they didn't give one to him uh one last note on the u.s women's team i just wanted to note that of all of these, like I said, 200 uh, parades that have been thrown over the years, this is only the 12th Canyon of Heroes parade devoted solely to women. Uh, and really, before these back-to-back wins by the women's national team, it had been 55 years since a woman was the sole focus of a ticker tape parade. And, and now they have accomplished each of the last two. They've made it sort of their own personal celebration uh for winning these world cups so i think that's pretty special on top of all of the other things that uh that you know are kind of coming about and changing as a result of their victory you know the calls for equal pay you know they've made this american tradition which almost always went to men over history they've now made it their thing they own this now which is pretty cool i might have been a little bit worried about um whether they would have the parade because of you know the politics surrounding the team but our 
podcast producer Grace Lynch points out that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, got to ride on a float with Megan Rapino in 2015. So now he's running for president. So maybe this is a good thing for him to <laughs> tout these women and get back on that. Well, board. I think it's also a nice, you know, the Venn diagram between people who want to see women's sports succeed and uh, just straight up jingoists. You know, we can kind of unify a lot of the country between those two, uh, yeah. uh, you know, groups of people. They may not always see eye to eye, but they are can both have something to get behind. Really in about this some, victory. Yeah, really it's about, about unity. Coalition yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. Did the U.S. men get a parade for making it out on the group stage in 2014? Did they did they get one for tying Portugal? Tell them to win something. Can they can they win anything? <laughs> All right, let's leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks, guys, for joining me today. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Travis, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.